is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. My name is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Programme. Now, after all the hoo-ha of the last couple of weeks, it's actually quite splendid to be back in my old broadcasting chair and preparing to read a story to you. On the downside, though, it seems that the management here would still like to persevere with the inanity that passes for a listener's quiz in these parts. Can you guess what it is that I'm describing? No, what happens with that is... Ah, well, the explanation will have to wait as it appears, miracle of miracles, that there is a listener telephoning in. Ahoy hoy, this is Theodore speaking. Good day to you, listener. Are you prepared to play? Can you guess what it is that I'm describing? This is P.G. Basilthorpe Stilton, OAE. Multi-award winning journalist, writer and host of the Brains Trust of Albion Weekly on a Tuesday, and I wish to make a complaint. Oh, you again, is it? Well, I'm sorry complaints are not really my department, but for want of someone better, I can offer you the chance to win three shillings. Three shillings, you say? I'm afraid I don't really stir myself from my chaise long for anything less than ten guineas these days, but it might come in handy for throwing at small children on bonfire night. Nah, that's the spirit. Hmm, well, it goes like this. I will ask you three questions and... You can skip the tedious formalities. You forget, I was hosting your extremely minor radio programme only two weeks ago. Oh, yes. I had actually wiped that from my mind. Well, in that case, let's cut to the chase. So for three shillings, here is your first clue. Red I am upon the prickly bush, but do not sit on me or I will crush. That is just nonsensical. Tell me about it. Story of my life. Anyway, introspection aside, I must trouble you for an answer. This is beneath me. Incorrect. Right, for one shilling and threepence, here is your second clue. Open your mouth, don't mumble, as you devour me in a crumble. I don't do the cooking. No, I'm sure you don't. Presumably that's beneath you too, although that could get messy. (laughs) No? Honestly, I'm wasted here. Uh, Answer, please. Is it a kind of cheese? Um, no. You weren't joking when you said you don't cook. Cheese crumble? Well, that's a new one on me. My third wife's homeopath always used to put Wensleydale in her spotted dick. Hmm. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Shame we're running out of time. Here is your final clue for eight pennies and one half penny. What's a penny? It's something I'd like to show up your posterior. Right, here it is. Cocktails and salad apart. You'll most likely find me on a tart. Is it the third Earl of Glossop? No, you great blithering nincompoop, and I should remind you we are broadcasting live to the nation. Well, some of it anyway. My fourth wife's masseur accidentally sold my stuffed piranha collection to the third Earl of Glossop's butler's twin brother. 
I couldn't care less. Anyway, the answer is a raspberry, which it seems is all you'll be getting from me. I'm still making a complaint. <laughs> yes, childish, I know, but rather satisfying, don't you think? And now on the light programme, it's time once again for Slumber Time Stories, read, as always, by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. ARC presents Part 2 of Crash Again, Again, by Darren Callow. Two hours later, with Fitch's arm still requiring near-constant adjustments from the professor, they found themselves airborne again. In the interregnum, Ellen had snuck onto a local airfield and, um, borrowed one of the ghoulish ornithopters she had espied from the hospital window. Well, when I say borrowed, I mean, of course, nicked. But who is going to quibble when the fate of the entire human race was at stake? It was a bit of a cramped cockpit, but somehow they had all squeezed in. This had been achieved by Mrs Tickle being on Ellen's lap, and Professor Lushthorpe, tools in both hands, sitting on Fitch's. Before they had left, Ellen had found, with much arm-waving and Gallic confusion, the local rocket-assisted pigeon station, and dispatched one of said birds to the war cabinet back in New Albion. The telegram had read, Location, missing ear moo B found, stop. Probably, stop. 40 minutes into big caravan race, 20 minutes north, stop. Send cavalry soonest, if not sooner, stop. She would have liked more explanation, but only had two francs on her, and it was an extortionate ten centimes a word. She'd argued at complete cross-purposes for nearly 15 minutes as to whether ear moo was one word or two, until the matronly Gallic operator had finally coalesced to the Albion pilot's point of view and given in. After all, it was nearly lunchtime, and she wasn't going to miss her brie and burgundy for the sake of a mere ten centimes. Ellen just hoped it was enough information for the powers that be to find them. On top of this, she was praying that the ornithopter had enough fuel to get them where they needed to be, as they flew pretty much dead south, over the middle Terranian Sea, towards the scorching wastes of the Nubian Desert. The flight would have been fairly straightforward, had it not become more and more obvious that Fitch's new mechanical arm was a little, well, cantankerous is probably the polite way to say it. Now fully up to probably maximum windage, it kept jerking this way and that, occasionally grabbing the controls and trying to divert them to a new course. All the while Lushthorpe muttered to himself and tried to make adjustments with a range of mismatched tools, but so far it seemed only to have made things worse. 
It came to a head nearly two hours into their spasmodic flight, as all eyes were trained on the desert, looking for the giant volcano crater-like pirate base. When another plane, this time a quad plane flying due west, was suddenly on a collision course. The arm, on this occasion, almost helpfully, chose to grab the joystick and send them into a somersault. They all yelled as the thopter flipped over and they waved lamely at the simian pilot of the quad plane who shook a fist at them in annoyance. By this point, even Ellen could not recover control of the contraption and it seemed they were desert-bound. The rest of the adventure would have to be on foot and for this they were ill-prepared. Bracing positions, warned Ellen, somewhat superfluously, as she noticed that the quad plane they had so nearly come to blows with appeared to also be crashing not too far from them. After a less than comfortable crash landing, the second in only three days, they were all mightily relieved to find that no additional limbs had been lost. Although Fitch secretly wished that his new mechanical arm might have been irrevocably damaged by the impact, uh, no such fortune came his way. It was apparent to them all that a new emergency plan was needed, and quickly, and the best that any of them could come up with was getting a fire going that at least might attract attention of some sort. So this they did, although mostly with bits of their own clothing and parts of the mangled ornithopter as other kindling was a little sparse on the ground, it being a desert and all. It was whilst attempting to get this fire going with a slightly over-the-top method of using Fitch's plasma rifle, that they first noticed movement amongst the distant dunes. Looking more keenly, they began to see, with increasing alarm, a mass of figures advancing cautiously towards them through the heat haze. Their clothing was coloured perfectly to blend in with the sand and rocks, swarthy headdresses about their heads, and they were brandishing a range of mean-looking rifles and pistols. Stay behind me, ordered Fitch, but his mechanical arm had other ideas and gave the approaching strangers a cheery wave. Stop that, Fitch hissed at his limb, but it showed no sign of complying. Oh dear, muttered Lushthorpe. Uh, another thing to look at. Fitch ignored him and tried to get his plasma rifle into position ready to fire with his left hand. But before he could, though, one of the camouflaged troops popped out of the sand almost right in front of them, his rifle pointing straight at Fitch's head. What ho? the man hollered. Stay still or one will be forced to fire. No one wants that, least of all me. What, 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 what? Smeggy? cried Lushthorpe, peering out from behind Fitch's bulk. The very same, cried the man, pulling his headscarf down to reveal a mustachioed face topped with a khaki cap bearing a distinctive gecko and hamster cap badge. Captain Panfold Smickerton at your service! He lowered his weapon and proffered a quivering salute. Is that you, Lushy, you old coot? Fitch also lowered his gun and stared at them both with an arched eyebrow. Ah, don't worry, uh, this is Smeggy Pants Smickerton. Uh, uh, we roomed together at Thornton. Hmm. Well, that's all right then, muttered Fitch sarcastically. His arm, however, begged to differ, and without so much as a by your leave, it smacked Smeggy Smeggerton right across the chops, sending him reeling over the sand.
Fortunately, being a good public schoolboy, Captain Smegerton of the New Albion Nubian Expeditionary Force, uh, less tongue-twistingly known as either the Desert Geckos or the Fighting Hamsters, depending on who you asked, laughed this off. Then, introductions having been made, and since night was tiptoeing closer, instructed his men to set up a bivouac encampment. In the centre of which, a most splendid campfire, infinitely superior to their own pathetic attempt, appeared out of almost nowhere. They all sat down to enjoy a well-earned meal, and the captain launched into a very loud explanation of how he and his men came to be there. There, conducting long-range exercise, don't you know? He bellowed, as the rest of his camouflage platoon continued to appear from all around to assist with the camp-making. Good bunch, this, but absolute plebs when it comes to the sandy stuff of a far, far. Thought I'd show them the ropes. Teach them to brush between their teeth, if you follow me. Go for far, far. It had to be said that they didn't really follow him, but trying to be polite, they nodded along anyway. Funny thing, though, came across another downed kite just before yours. Rescued a similar motley crew. Perhaps even a shade motlier. Ha, 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 ha. He randomly, in the way that only upper-class ex-public schoolboy army twits can. Oh yes, uh, we nearly hit them, admitted Ellen, hoping to get onto the topic of pirate bases before too long. Are you here because of my pigeon? What pigeon? Bellowed Smegerton, a man whose volume attenuation seemed permanently on the blink. No, no, we were... <laughs> no, we were out this way anyway, a far, far. So what are you fine lads and lasses doing so far out in the Nubian wastelands? Well, started Ellen, taking an enormous breath. We stole a Gaulish ornithopter to find a pirate base in the Nubian desert that's not really a pirate base, it's really a top-secret alien transporter device that was used to beam commanders to the moon 50 years ago. She stopped for the shortest breath possible, her arms held up to prevent Smegerton sticking his metaphorical oar in again. And we've got to find some way to get it working again so we can get back up to the moon and help them in turn get the Martians back to Mars or wherever they came from. I mean, I assume it's Mars, them being Martians and all. <laughs> no, possibly with some sort of brown gas, but uh, who really knows, eh? She finally came up for air and was expecting Smegerton to launch into a riposte of some kind but instead he was rubbing his chin thoughtfully. Ha, pirate lair, you say, he partially yelled. I think I know the place you mean, big round thing, lots of drug people. That's it, exclaimed Ellen, jumping up. Do you know it? I most certainly do, ah, huh? bellowed the captain. We always look in there in our long-range desert sweeps. Ha, ha, ha. Good place for a bevy, don't you know? He slapped his thigh in excitement. But we get you there on the morrow. Ha. Do you think the pirates might know how to return it to working order? I doubt it, sighed Ellen. It was a long time ago, and there's no one there now that remembers those days, as far as I know. Well... Now I might be able to help there, came a dreary, boring voice as a new, hunched and bedraggled figure slunk up to their fireside group. 
They all looked at the rat-faced man, and Ellen and Fitch gasped in unison as they recognised the rodent-alike features. Snook! they cried in unison. It's Snare now, replied the dreary voice. And Snare has a brother to avenge. Well, that was all very exciting. Sounds like it's building up to a climax quite nicely. Anyway, that's all we have time for today. So, complaints aside, there's just time for me to say... Good night, New Albion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. Stories, voices, and characters created by and copyright to Darren Callum. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from the Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the soundtrack album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production for Albion Radiophonic Corporation.